All right, so this week we're doing chapters 13 and 14 from Rise of the Servant Kings. This is on the fight and prayer. So we're combining the two chapters again. Um, why combine both of them? Because really prayer is the main way we fight. So we're going to talk about what the fight is, and then we're going to talk about how we fight, and a lot of that has to do with prayer. So when I was a police officer in Rampart Division of the LAPD back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was an extremely high crime area. And uh, I was a driving officer, and my partner, Arthur Duran, was uh, next to me, and we see this gal walking down the street. And you used to see crazy things um, down there. I, I assume you still do, I don't know, but with all the high crime. And we saw what looked like a witch walking down the street. She had these like icicle things hanging down from her face, and her hair was all painted blue and white. And we pulled over to see what was going on. And as we pulled over, we saw blood all over her. And she started attacking us like a crazy woman, like snarling, like a crazy cat or something, broken nails. And as we as we were able to get her and handcuff her and take her bag, she had this paper bag, it's full of, of uh, cans of paint. So what happened was as people got so far down in a drug addiction, they would huff uh, paint. They would take uh, spray paint. That's why it's illegal in some places now and breathe the fumes in it would get you high, but also destroy your brain really quickly. So we saw this this uh, woman had a, a thing around her neck or her arm, I can't remember, and it was a bracelet with um, her address on it. So we take her to the address. This woman comes running out of about 40 years old and grabs this uh, witch looking woman and pulls her inside and we go in with her and we see this picture of this family there and we find out that this witch woman was her 16 year old daughter who had completely destroyed her brain with huffing paint. And the blood all over her was she had just gotten raped, which she got raped almost every night. We, her mother tells us that um, uh, her her husband had left, taken their son six months earlier. And when she did, this girl had destroyed her mind with paint. And in the book, we talk about this, the utter hopelessness of this broken family and how this woman had nowhere to turn. She had no friends. Nobody cared about her. And as we called the ambulance to, to, to do a great rape investigation, a woman was talking about, you're never going to find anybody because nobody cares. And in her case, they, they didn't. And I want to contrast that and, and talk about the fight that's happening because there's people like that, maybe not to that extreme, but they're all around us. They're lost and they're broken. And we as men of God need to rescue those people. As it says in first, uh, excuse me, in Isaiah 117, you've heard me quote it before, that our job is to plead the widow's cause. It is to correct the oppressor. It is to stand up for justice. These are things that take time and attention on confrontation often, healthy confrontation. As we look at the end of Second Timothy, it's the last book of the Bible that Paul wrote. Paul is giving us a bunch of warnings. Now, imagine Paul, he's in this, cold cell. He's alone. He wrote the book of Romans 10, 15 years earlier. And now here he is in Rome and he's writing Timothy. I'm all alone. Everybody's left me. So we see the great man of God who's been abandoned. He asked Timothy, would you come and would you bring me my coat? Cause I'm cold. So we see the end of the great man, the great man's life. And yet he's all alone, except for a few of the great saints like Titus and Timothy who stand with him. But Paul knows he's about to be executed. He's going to be beheaded. Because he's a Roman citizen, he did not have to be tortured to death like everyone else. He was going to be beheaded. But they were going to beat him and break many of his bones beforehand. They could not kill him by beating him. So they were just beating him as worse as they could until he was close to death. Then they would behead him. Paul knows this is his end that's coming. He's cold. He's lonely. He's got a brutal death awaiting him. And he's now giving us his final words to Timothy. 
and he's saying some things that are extremely important. So he's warning Timothy and he's warning the church in the last days of what's going to come, which we think is us. We think these are the last days. It seems fairly obvious. And so Paul wants to make some things very clear to all of us that we need to know. The first one is, Paul says that fake Christians and impostors will increase. Now we see a lot of warnings about this. It's not just fake Christians and impostors, but we see the things that are going to come. Paul says in, in here and some other places that murderers and liars and deceivers will increase. Friendships being betrayed by people will increase. And so he wants to let us know, he's not thinking about himself, what's coming. Fake Christians, imposters are going to increase. People will be more easily deceived. And why are people more easily deceived when they don't know God's word? Because when you can't stand on God's word, you get tossed to and fro by every new idea that comes along the Bible says. So as fake Christians increase, people are more easily deceived by those fake Christians. People will no longer tolerate what God's word says. Instead, they can listen to pastors and teachers who tell them what they want to hear. That says that in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Lastly, those who truly love Jesus and his word will suffer at the hands of the deceived and the deceivers. So who are we fighting with? We see that there is a lack of the love of truth. People are going to heap up for themselves pastors who will tell them what they want to hear. We make a mistake when we think that the biggest church must be the most blessed church. No, the biggest church is the most popular church. I think it was Francis Chan who said that he knew it was time to get out of the ministry when he realized that his church was bigger than Jesus's would be if he was here. And if Francis, if I said that wrongly to you, I apologize. But I think I love that quote. I think that was Francis Chan. If Jesus had a church today, how big would it be? And can you imagine all the requirements that he had of being a true disciple of his? So we know that fake Christians, Christians will be morally deceived. They will not tolerate sound doctrine. So this is the fight that we see ourselves in. Going back to the woman who's lonely, who's losing her daughter. Imagine that situation she's in. Who is standing up for her? And then we look over here to churches who are built on popularity. They become a massive business. Paul promises us that's what's going to happen. So we all say we want to be in the fight, but how do we fight? You know, the early church, uh, in the Roman times, a lot of times people would kill baby girls. There's some letters, I don't know if you've ever read them, um, actual letters of soldiers writing, writing to their wives saying, I've heard you're pregnant. That's great. If it's a boy, name him, whatever. And if it's a girl, kill it. And what happened was a lot of those people back then, they couldn't afford uh, to have too many kids. So they would have just boys because boys were the ones that could go off and fight in wars and make money. And the girls would be often a, a, a burden. So what they would do is if they had a baby girl, they would just take her out to the back alleys and just leave her. And the elements would take care of her and they would die and they would just kind of forget about it. But what happened was Christians fighting against that kind of evil went and they listened for the cries of babies who were left out in the elements. They were rescuing these babies. So what happened was the church, Christian church fairly early on became a place of lots of women. And ironically, because we know that all people are created equal in God's eyes, that there's neither Jew nor Greek and male nor female, which is we've talked about the inheritance. It's not talking about roles, but the inheritance in God's eyes. Girls were treated equally with boys. They were educated. They were taught business. So. What happened was you ended up with this, this entity, the church, that was full of intelligent, educated young women. Now, when you have a society that's male dominant because the girls have been killed, well, where are all these soldiers and things going to go for wives? Well, they figured out the church pretty quickly. So now soldiers went to the church to get wives and they ended up with life. They ended up getting saved. So Rome was literally destroyed from the inside out by love and not war. 
by Christians rescuing the oppressed women, raising them up, starting Christian families with the soldiers. Within a few centuries, Rome became the center of Christianity instead of the center of persecution. And this is how we fight. It's with diligence. It's with love. It's with compassion. It's with equality. But it's important because sometimes the task can be so great. The war seems so huge that we can become overwhelmed. And I think it's important to look at the analogy of how we beat the Japanese in World War II. Japan sent out there on an island and it had a mighty navy. And there was no way that we were going to be able to go and take on Japan directly. So what did we do? We took rock by rock by rock on our way to Japan. Guam, Guadalcanal, um, different uh, Okinawa. The Marines went and they battled for little tiny rock after little tiny rock after little tiny rock until they were on Japan's doorstep. And then we were able to defeat Japan. See, if those Marines had known the actual size of the war, if they had known about the, the need for the Allies to take Africa in order to get into Europe to be able to defeat the um, Nazis, and if they knew the insanity of trying to defeat the Japanese the way we were, they would have been overwhelmed. But that wasn't their job. That was Eisenhower's job. That was MacArthur's job. Their job was to take the rock in front of them. And so we as Christians need to understand that we've been given a war. We are in this fight. We are in the fight to rescue that woman that had that drug out daughter. We're in the fight to rescue the babies that are being murdered in our culture. But if we look at the whole idea of it, Satan comes in and he says, what can you do? Who do you think you are? What, what difference is it going to make? Just take your ease and relax. And Jesus is going to come back someday. When Jesus himself says, no, I have an assignment for you to do. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, there are good works laid down at the foundation of time for you to accomplish. You take the rock in front of you. You don't need to worry about everybody else. What is the grand scheme of things? There are different levels of people gifted different ways to see a different size of it. But you and I are talking about the lack of masculinity, the lack of men standing on godly values to be manly, masculine men, the way we were created to be. That is a massive problem in the church today. So we fight, we take the rock in front of us according to the gifts that God has given us, the assignment he's given us. Don't let the size of the fight overwhelm you. See the battle in front of you and win that battle. And you will find that by winning battle after battle after battle, you'll look back on your life someday and go, man, I see a life that mattered. I see a life that made a difference in people's lives. And there are fewer women like that one I started to begin with because I took the rock in front of me and I didn't let the battle overwhelm me. So who are we fighting exactly? And this is what's very important. And Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter six, that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against principalities of darkness, against the plans of the evil one. There are people who are deceived and people who are the deceivers. Some people have been caught in Satan's lies so much and they're used by him. Now, some of those people, it says in, um, I think it's 2 Thessalonians, yeah, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the God's actually turned away from him. He said, you guys have chosen evil so much that I'm just going to turn away from you to make sure that you get condemned. I mean, so there are some people who are beyond salvation, but we don't know who they are. Only God does. So it's important that we're not fighting against people. We need to love people because they've been caught by the plans of Satan. They've been caught by who he is. But as we look at taking the rock in front of us, let's make sure that we stay within our skill set and our calling. Because in American culture, we keep thinking we have to do the big thing. We have to be the big man, be on stage, write the book, um, have the big ministry. And in fact, Paul says very clearly in, in Titus and in 1 Timothy that 
you if you can't run your own household you, you don't need to be doing bigger things you need to worry about your household so let's start off with our wives let's start off by loving our wives and having godly wives and then godly kids and then godly communities and then godly churches but I, I think one of the other ways we get lied to is that we think we have to do some great thing now the greatest thing you can do is have a wife who loves jesus christ because the example that you are to her and the teaching that you've given her and the next greatest thing you can do is to raise godly offspring. We brought up Malachi a couple of times where God says, I'm jealous for a godly offspring. So our job is to raise godly young men and women who can continue on in the fight. Those are our foundational battle. And then after that, then we can begin to go on to a, a bigger level, a bigger road. But if you have a screwed up household, if you have a screwed up family, and it, and it may be none of your fault, but if you do have those things, it's important that you deal with those things first before you start doing bigger things. And I'm going to sum up the fight part of this before we go into prayer by saying that um, there's a common quote that you can judge a man by his friends. And I say it's more accurate to judge a man by his enemies. Who hates you and why? Because if you're in the fight, if you're truly outpouring yourself out for the Lord, people are going to hate you. And I think it's a good practice to kind of step back and say, who am I at odds with? Am I at odds with somebody over not a godly issue that's my fault? I need to go and repent and ask that person for forgiveness. Do I have people who hate me because I am absolutely standing on the word of God? Good, because Jesus promises us that we will have enemies if we're doing it right. So let's transition over to prayer because it's part of the fight. In fact, there's no more valuable thing we can do in the fight than to be prayer warriors. I was in a, on a mission trip down in Africa well, about 20 years ago now. And um, I had this group of people that I was leading and we went to orphanage and they had a couple of acres at the orphanage and a couple hundred kids. And we brought a bunch of sustainable vegetables to plant, sweet potatoes and cabbages and I can't remember all the stuff. But we get there and we're greeted by the staff and it's a, it's a woman that's leading the staff, it's all women. And there's probably a staff of 50 women there. And so I've got the picks and the hose and the plants and the trailer and we're ready to get going. And I'm all charged up, let's get to work because we had a lot of acres to plant before the sunset. And she says, but pastor, pastor, wait, wait, wait. We have to worship the Lord first. And I'm like, oh, brother, we don't have time for worshiping the Lord. We got work to do. You can get where this is going, right? And so she, uh, she starts to sing. And it sounded like being in a black church in the South. I mean, it was just this harmonic, awesome time. And they're swaying back and forth and, and uh, singing like, like a little worship I've ever heard in my life. It was beautiful. And it went on for like 40 minutes. But I was kind of listening and, and, and taking it in, but also like, we got work to do. So they finally finished after 40 minutes of praising the Lord. And and uh, and then I'm like, great, let's get to work. She said, wait, pastor, 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 we still have to worship the Lord. I said, oh, I thought we just worshiped the Lord. We haven't worshiped the Lord yet. We haven't prayed yet. Oh. Then they prayed for like an hour. And I mean, they prayed. They prayed against their enemies, against, you know, uh, helping these kids and on and on and on. And I'm thinking, man, oh man, we got to get to work. It's now you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, and we were supposed to start at about 8. So 10 o'clock, they get done. And I tell you, it was a humbling experience. The prayer was rich, but I was also anxious to get to work. And now that's CEO driving me. Well, we planted that whole bunch of acreage within a couple of hours. It was crazy. I've never, the planting was so easy. The, the hoeing went well, the rows went well, the seedlings went in. And it, all this acreage suddenly turned in from a bunch of dirt to like this beautiful, fertile, planted ground. We finished so early. That then we got to go and play with all the orphans. So they were all out of school and there was like 200 kids and they were all like three, four, five years old. 
and they're running and, and I held my arms out at one point to get a picture with them. And instead they all mobbed me so much we couldn't get the picture because they all want to get hugged. So I just sat there for like two hours hugging kids and they were sitting in my lap and runny noses and filthy and, and just loving on these kids. None of the work went so smoothly because we spent a lot of time praying. And what hit me was, she said, we haven't worshiped the Lord yet because we'd sang, but we hadn't prayed. And it hit me. Prayer is worship. Prayer is the ultimate worship. Prayer is the time when we get ourselves out of our flesh and we get in the spirit and we meet our Lord where he is. If we really want to hear from the Lord, we have to shut out the flesh. You know, that's where we're comfortable. We're comfortable and I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm sleepy, um, I'm happy, whatever our flesh happens to be feeling. But God is in the spirit. John says we need to worship God in spirit, not in the flesh. And so that's where he is. God shuts out himself out from the carnal eye. We, the carnal eye cannot find God. When we're locked in our flesh, we can't see him, we can't hear from him. It's when we get in the spirit in a quiet place, that's where we really worship him because our Lord knows how hard it is for us to really get into prayer, especially men. I don't know what it is, but my wife is a prayer warrior. I talk about a lot about that in this book and other books. Eliot can pray the paint off the walls, man. And I've seen her create miracles and unbelievable expressions of prayer. And yet still, I'm a lot more comfortable studying the word of God than I am in praying. And I get all this credit. People say I'm a man of prayer and I feel ashamed to take that that title on when I look at myself compared to my dear wife, who that, now that's someone who prays. But for us, and for me, you know, reading God's word, easy. But getting ourselves out of the flesh, shutting out the world, and concentrating fully and totally on our Lord God, that is our ultimate in worship, man. And that is where he can meet us where we're at. And that's when we hear him really downloading him and teaching us and talking to us. You know, I do hear some pastors um, talking about how they're very critical of people that they've, I've heard from the Lord. And I do think we have to be careful. When someone says, God told me, a lot of times what they're saying is, I'm manipulating you, right? We've all heard that. God told me, God told me. But sometimes God did tell somebody. Sometimes somebody is really a prayerful person. And we need to be discerning about that. When someone says, God told me to such and such. Well, who is this person? How strong are they in the Lord? But God does talk to people. And he talks to people who are poured out to him, but who are following him with diligence. Why doesn't God always talk to us? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first thing that God really values perseverance. And why? Is, is God a, a harsh father? Well, no, but a lot of times we're not ready yet for an answer. You think about, again, we go back to God is our father. When Christ told the disciples, pray like this, our father who art in heaven. God had never been called father before, something so intimate. The disciples would have heard that as a sense of, whoa. We're talking about Yahweh, right? We're talking about Mount Sinai shaking and quaking and, and people dying in fear. And you're saying, Father? That's right. Things are about to change. I'm about to take all your sins upon me and throw them away from you. And now you're about to become a nation of priests. And God is now going to have a relationship with you like Father. Well, how are we like fathers? If your 10-year-old comes to you and says, Dad, can I drive the tractor? Or, or the Mazda, whichever one. The answer is no. Well, why not? You're not ready. Well, I think I'm ready. Well, I know you think you're ready because you're 10, but you're not ready. Now, when he comes to us at 16 and says, can I drive the tractor or the Mazda? The answer is yes. Now, what happens in between? He may pester us for the next six years and he may be told no, 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 or wait, 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 which is, as you'll hear me say many times, God's favorite word, wait. But the time comes when he's ready and then he gets yes. What's required? Perseverance. 
He's got to keep coming to us. If at 16, he's just gotten tired of asking, he never asks again. Maybe he never gets to drive the tractor or the Mazda. But when he asks at the right time when he's ready, then he gets the reward of getting to drive the car. Why else does God not answer us? Sin. Sin can be a debilitating thing. You know, First Peter says, treat your wife well so your prayers aren't inhibited. Wait, what? Yes, if we treat our wives harshly, our prayers are inhibited. Scripture says in many places, including Jeremiah eleven fourteen, that God's not listening to us if we're full of, of sin. In fact, in, uh, in Isaiah, he says, I cover my ears so I don't have to hear you. I don't have to hear your prayers because you're so full of your own selves, your own flesh, your sin. So when we have known sin in our lives, this can inhibit our prayer life. So if you're not hearing from the Lord, if your prayer life is dry, there may be no, many reasons. But two main reasons may be, one, God's just saying, wait. But usually in that, we still feel his presence. It may be sin, and sometimes we're not aware of sin. Sometimes the right prayer is, Lord, if I've offended you, if, I, if there's sin in my life I don't know about, please reveal it to me, and then be ready to receive and to repent. And I often will tell men, if you're not sure what your sin is, it's probably pride, because pride is the great blinder. And uh, pride is that one thing that allows us not to see anything else. But sin will inhibit your prayers, and specifically treating your wife poorly will inhibit your prayers. So as we've seen, prayer is the main way we fight, and perseverance is extremely important in prayer for many different reasons. We can't see the whole battle, or excuse me, the whole war, but we can see the battle in front of us. What rock do we need to take? Perseverance is the key in effective praying. Uh, the, remember, it says in James that the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's funny, I was talking to a real man of God, a good friend this morning who quoted that prayer to me, the prayer of a righteous man uh, avails much. And I said, um, I won't say his name, friend, um, you missed a word. The fervent prayer of a righteous man, that's a big word to miss. What does that mean? It means like we talked about, separating ourselves from the world, meeting with God, not a, even, even a, a, a prayer that may take five minutes. No, the fervent prayer. Get in front of him on your knees, in your closet, in a, in a dark place. Get, separate yourself from everything and pray. But perseverance in that prayer is key. And I wanted to finish with this quote from George Cecil. This is on page 160 of, of Rise of the Sermon Kings. On the plains of hesitation bleached the bones of countless millions who, at the dawn of victory, sat down to wait, and in waiting, died. Don't let your prayers die. And don't let those people who are counting on you die. Persevere in prayer. Make sure that you are emptied out before our Lord God. Make sure there is no unrepented sin in your life. And then come before him. And you will see your life become a blessing to millions when you do that.